Hello everyone, and welcome to the July 14th edition of Work Con Compatibly Weekly News. I'm Kyle Eubelhart, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly, and thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Here is what happened in the case of Gallardo versus Southern California Edison and Huntington Hospital. Rudy Gallardo's claim of industrial injury to his low back and right shoulder was settled by compromise and release. Before the settlement, he had two back surgeries performed at the Huntington Hospital. This left a dispute concerning the hospital lien claim in the amount of nearly $44,000 pursuant to the official medical fee schedule, in addition to the $18,000 already paid by Edison. Two contracts were received into evidence after the lien trial over the fee dispute. The first was a 23-page 2002 comprehensive contracting hospital agreement made between Blue Cross of California and Huntington. The second was a seven-page 2006 Workers' Compensation Network Access Agreement made between Edison and Blue Cross of California subsidiary. The WCJ issued a decision finding that the defendant was obligated to pay the additional $44,000 to Huntington pursuant to the official medical fee schedule. Edison claimed on reconsideration that the WCAB lacks jurisdiction over the fee dispute and that it is not liable to Huntington for the additional amount because the express agreement between Huntington and Blue Cross of California, which established the amount to be paid. The WCAB panel agreed and reversed. Labor Code Section 5304 provides that the Appeals Board has jurisdiction over any controversy unless an express agreement fixing the amounts to be paid for the treatment has been made. In prior decisions, the WCAB held that the language in the Blue Cross Comprehensive Contracting Hospital Agreement expressly allows Blue Cross to contract with other payers to provide access to hospitals' medical services. Such other payers include workers' compensation insurers. The $18,000 fee paid to Huntington by way of the chain of contracts was pursuant to an express agreement fixing the amounts to be paid. Thus, Section 5304, the WCAB does not have jurisdiction over the fee dispute. A different forum must be used by Huntington to adjudicate its breach of contract claims. And now, for our fraud report. According to the lawsuits filed throughout the state, several doctors in Southern California have implanted counterfeit screws and rods ginned up in small machine shops into the backs of thousands of injured workers. Some doctors who used the bogus hardware allegedly took kickbacks including cash and private plane rides, while middlemen and hospitals profited by wildly inflating the cost of the screws. The allegations deepen the scandal surrounding Michael Drobot, who pleaded guilty in April to paying doctors to bring in patients as part of a $500 million insurance scam. Drobot also admitted to bringing former state senator Ronald Calderon to keep huge insurance payments flowing. The case resolved around spinal fusion surgeries in which rods and screws are implanted into the back to relieve pain. The state's workers' compensation system long paid a premium for hardware used in the surgeries until a loophole was closed by recent legislation. The latest lawsuit, filed in Los Angeles, alleges that the knockoff spinal implants could harm patients because they could get an infection or react to metal that is not surgical grade. The screws also might loosen or fail. 
Some of the bogus screws cost $300 to make, but were billed as much as $12,500 each. Law firms in the Bay Area and Los Angeles plan to continue to file cases on behalf of people with counterfeit implants. Spinal Solutions, the firm accused of distributing the implants, deny the allegations, saying it is impossible that the elderly machinist mass-produced the hardware. One of the plaintiffs, Arthur Golia of Riverside, alleges he and seven counterfeit devices implanted in his spine. Golia trusted his doctor to use medical implants approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Instead, the case alleges that Dr. Jack Amuchian used counterfeit implants in Golia's back because he was being paid a kickback to do so. Separately, the Medical Board of California accused Mujicin, April, of injecting unsafe amounts of steroids in patients and overprescribing drugs. A separate whistleblower lawsuit alleges that many of the patients with fake implants may not have needed the surgery at all. According to that May 2012 suit, there may be collateral damages of a massive scheme to defraud insurers involving Jobot, former owner of Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. Jobot admitted to paying doctors kickbacks of up to $15,000 to operate in his hospital. He also admitted to paying bribes to Calderon to protect a law allowing hospitals to bill insurance providers for the full cost of spinal implants. Calderon, a Montebello Democrat, has pleaded not guilty to the corruption charges. Jobot's sentencing is scheduled for December. The federal government is rewarding doctors and hospitals for moving to electronic health records. They will soon punish them if they don't, even if fraud experts say these records currently make it easier for healthcare providers to defraud government and pay health programs. The HHS inspector general charged that the basic auditing safeguards that also help to prevent fraud for electronic health records are not in place in many hospitals, or they were otherwise vulnerable to corruption. Experts say that the health records that are maintained electronically can be easily falsified. A CMS spokesman said that CMS is working to create strong standards for validating electronic health records to protect taxpayers from fraud, waste, and abuse. Electronic records can be enormously beneficial in medicine. They improve patient care and cut costs by allowing doctors and pharmacists to coordinate treatment. That reduces medical errors and avoids duplication of procedures. HHS has spent more than $22.5 billion in financial incentives for doctors and hospitals to use EHRs, and those who don't will soon have their Medicare payments reduced. The problems occur when the records aren't audited for reliability or checked for cloned records. Questionable electronic documentation systems allow providers to add notes to existing records or create new records where none existed before. Some healthcare providers who are the subject of insurance company audits or criminal investigations have created such records. The push for EHRs comes as funding for fraud prevention has been on a downward trend. CMS is working on new standards and ways to identify when records are copied and used inappropriate in future notes, wrongly modified, or altered by date or author. The agency said it is also trying to identify best practices for detecting fraud and abuse associated with the EHRs with the help of additional contractors.
A former Vesalia physician pleaded guilty and now faces 20 years sentence for illegal prescribing addictive drugs. A federal grand jury returned a 27-count indictment last year against 61-year-old Torell Eugene Brown of Vesalia, charging him with conspiracy dispense and illegally dispensing oxycodone and hydrocodone, and structuring currency transactions to avoid bank reporting requirements. At the time Brown was a medical doctor licensed in California, Brown sold prescriptions to customers that did not have a legitimate medical purpose and were not in the usual course of his professional practice. The cash was deposited into different personal bank accounts to avoid currency transaction reporting requirements. Brown is scheduled to be sentenced in September. He faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and $1 million fine for illegally causing the dispensing of a controlled substance, and 10 years and a $500,000 fine for structuring currency transactions to avoid the reporting requirement. Brown agreed to forfeit more than $182,000 and three BMW sedans that were involved in his criminal activity. This case is being brought as part of an Operation Footprint, a nationwide law enforcement initiative led by the U.S. Attorney's Office, the IRS Criminal Investigation, the DEA, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Operation Footprint targets large drug trafficking organizations by identifying the transfer of drug proceeds through financial institutions, bulk cash smuggling, and other forms of money transfers. This case is also the product of Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Prior to the 2013 indictment, Brown was the subject of a board medicine investigations that ultimately led to a surrender of his medical license. And now, time for our medical news. A gloomy picture for the future of antibiotics as a tool for modern medicine. For example, sexually transmitted diseases contracted by more than 100 million people a year used to be easily treatable. But as now, these diseases developed to superbug strains that are drug resistant and are spreading around the planet. Tuberculosis is a similar tale. Totally resistant forms of the lung infection emerged in India just a few years ago and have now been detected worldwide. Hospital patients in Africa with untreatable TB are often simply sent home to die. This is a glimpse of what Britain's chief medical officer calls the apocalyptic scenario of a post-antibiotic era. The World Health Organization says this scenario will be upon the U.S. this century unless something drastic is done. Now, governments and health officials are getting serious about trying to neutralize the situation. It may seem like a question of science, microbes and drugs, but in truth, it is a global issue of economics and national security. The, de the debate moved center stage last week when British Prime Minister David Cameron launched a global review of the crisis, securing specific support from Barack Obama and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. That builds on the resolution passed at the World Health Assembly in Geneva in May, recognizing the pressing need for the world to act on the fight to combat increasing resistance. Britain's chief medical officer claims this problem is not a science issue. This is an issue of markets and economics. In recent decades, drug makers have slashed investment in antibiotics because of poor returns from a class of low-priced medicines that are only used for short periods, 
As a result, the world's biggest investor in the field today is a little-known U.S. firm, Cubist Pharmaceuticals, with an annual research budget for antibiotics of only $400 million. The industry complains its antibiotics are severely undervalued, and they have a point. Just over a year ago, Johnson & Johnson won approval for the first drug in 40 years that provides a new way to treat TB. Yet sales of the new drug, Certuro, used forecasted by analysis to total just $75 million this year. Compare that to the new hepatitis C drugs, Savaldi, carrying an eye-watering price tag of $1,000 per pill and expected sales of $8 billion in 2014. For companies like Cubist, the current situation is not all doom and gloom. The exit of bigger players has reduced competition, while recent steps to ease the regulatory path to market have helped. And new federal law, the Generating Antibiotics Incentives Now Act, ensures some extra patient life. That's encouraging, but a more fundamental fix is still going to be needed. According to a new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, steroid injections used to treat back pain offer little or no real benefit. Those who received the drug mixed with the painkiller lidocaine scored no better on the measures of disability and leg pain after six weeks than patients in a control group who received lidocaine injection alone. The study's lead author said that injections are commonly used and the steroids do pose an added risk to patients without much benefit. She also stated that she does hope patients and their doctors will be more cautious about using injections for spinal stenosis. Lumbar spinal stenosis is a narrowing of the passageways surrounding spinal nerves in the lower back. The resulting nerve compression is a painful and the number one reason older adults have spinal surgery. The combination of glucosteroids and an anesthetic is supposed to reduce nerve inflammation and swelling in the surrounding tissue. Roughly 550,000 procedures at a cost ranging from $500 to $2,000 per injection are done each year just among Medicare recipients. But the study raises serious questions about the benefits of epidural glucosteroids injections for spinal stenosis. However, a co-chairman of the Guidelines Committee in North American Spine Society said it does not show it's not effective at all. Comments in an editorial concluded that if patients decide to have injections anyway, a second one should be avoided if there is no effect from the first. Because many insurance companies require the injections before surgery is approved, the new finding, combined with the FDA's warning that they can cause paralysis, nerve damage, or death, suggests that this requirement should be reconsidered. And in other news, the Workers' Compensation Research Institute released its sixth edition of its annual Medical Price Index for Workers' Compensation. The index, like the Consumer Price Index for Medical Care, measures price inflation, it tracks the actual medical prices paid for, and it also tracks each major services delivered to the injured workers in 25 states for the past 12 years. This index should help public policymakers and stakeholders understand how prices paid for medical professional services for injured workers in their state can compare to other states. The public can learn if the reason for price growth in their state is part of a national phenomenon or whether their causes are unique to their state 
and hence subject to local management or reform. The method used to construct the index is similar to the CPIM, which is published by the U.S. Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics. However, it is a more focused measure of workers' compensation price glow than the CPIM. In particular, the CPIM includes the prices of all medical services provided to the U.S. population. The majority of these services had little or no relevance for tracking medical prices for the care provided to injured workers. This new WCIR index tracked medical prices paid in 25 large states. The medical services fall into eight major groups, evaluation and management, physical medicine, surgery, major radiology, minor radiology, neurological and neuromuscular testing, pain management injections, and emergency care. The 11-year graph for professional services shows that California is well below the medium states without fee schedules and consistently below the medium of states with fee schedules. California was not as frugal with the evaluation and management services that slightly exceeded the medium of states with fee schedules for a few years in the middle of the study. However, for professional surgery services, California exceeded the medium of states with fee schedules for all years after 2003. California appears to have the most expensive community of surgeons. This week, Veterans Affairs released a critical report about its workers' compensation program, which documented mismanagement similar to other programs administered by the VA. The VA's Workers' Compensation Program, or WCP, provides compensation and medical rehabilitation for injured VA employees. The Department of Labor Office of Workers' Compensation Programs administers the WCP for all federal agencies. After claims adjudication, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs uses its employees' compensation fund to pay the claimant's medical expenses and compensation benefits. Then, it bills each agency annually through a chargeback report. Employing agencies manage all cases listed on the chargeback report. Within VA, the Assistant Secretary for Human Resources and Administration has broad responsibility for WCP policy development and oversight. Veterans Health Administration workers' compensation specialists execute the policy by initiating claims and managing cases from the time of employee injury up to the point of claims adjudication by the workers' office compensation programs. Upon claims adjudication, the specialists maintain WCP case files, assess medical evidence, and make job offers to return employees to work when possible. Oversight summarized in the most current report revealed that over 60% of all claims evaluated were not monitored properly. VA lacked a fraud detection process, which is surprising in light of VA's perpetual focus on veterans' potential defrauding the disability compensation program. Apparently, its own workers get a free pass for fraud. The Office of the Inspector generally concluded that the VA could have over $92 million if it improves management of the program. The report goes on to say that if five prior audits, they reported that enhanced case management could reduce VA's WCP costs and risk for fraud and abuse. In this report, they determined whether VHA improved workers' compensation program case management to better control costs and charge back year 2012 which represented the most current audit data available at the time we began work. 
They identified issues with claims initiation and monitoring similar to those disclosed in 2004 and 2011 audit reports. In other words, in over 10 years, the VA has done nothing to improve programs found in prior audits. Specifically, WCP case files lacked initial or sufficient medical evidence to support connections between claimed injuries and medical diagnosis. VHA inaccurately initiated about 56 of 793 claims. Claims also were not consistently monitored to timely return employees to work. Specialists did not make job offers or take actions to detect fraud protection with 49 of 793 active claims which were inadequately monitored. These issues occurred because VHA still lacked standard guidance and a clear chain of command to ensure compliance with statutory requirements and VA policy. VHA also lacked a fraud detection process. In total, opportunities exist for VHA to reduce costs by about $95.2 million with improved claimed management. And that's all for our news and events for this week. Please check out our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our podcast weekly news and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Kyle Eubelhart, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly, and thanks for joining us today. Be sure to drop a by again next week for much more news.